This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So we got three, two, one. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Try that again. <laughs> Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show. Was going to be the Tim Ferriss Experience, but then Joe Rogan would think I was copying him, so it sounds even more egotistical. But it is the Tim Ferriss Show. The guest we have with us today is Brian Kaufman. Brian, how are you? I'm great, man. Uh, just great. So pleased to be here talking to you. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm very excited to reconnect, and I've been thinking a lot about your craft. I follow you on Twitter. Uh, some of your exchanges are are hilarious. Uh, it's it's kind of like half screenwriting, half Nick's, I would say. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I try to dial, I try to dial back. You know, I think most people who um, are engaging with me on Twitter probably want to talk about creativity in some way. And then there's this fanatical core of the people who were with me at the beginning who were there partially because I wrote about and talked about the Knicks a lot. So <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's, I, I try to warn people, like, hey, there's going to be a Knicks rant for the next a little while, so stay away. Um, so, but I think it's probably now like 90% about creativity and 10% about the Knicks. 
No, you need to you need to support the core, the people who were there in the beginning. So so we met uh, quite a few years ago, I would say at this point. I remember our first in-person meeting was in New York City. Uh, for, for those people who don't know your work, or they probably do know your work, but they're not familiar with how you were involved with uh, these various uh, films, maybe you could just give people a, a very brief uh, overview of some of the the types of uh, movies you've worked on and just the type of work that you do, if that would be uh, if that's a, a sensible way to start. Sure, um, I am uh, a, a writer, director, and producer of mostly films and um, television as well. Some of the movies um, on which I've I've worked in, in at least one of those capacities um, are Rounders. Solitary Man, Runaway Jury, Ocean's 13, The Illusionist. Um, I have a TV show that we're going to shoot in the fall for Showtime called Billions. And, um, you know, Tim, there's IMDb out there. The folks mm-hmm. can go if they want to. No, of course. Uh, I don't want to go line deeper. by line through your IMDb or the Wikipedia. I just think that it's it's what, what's what's always been so interesting to me, and we'll come back to sort of the Genesis story in a second, is that you you do not fit in one role and i mean there are many people who attempt to do this but very very few that i've had personal encounters with who've succeeded at sort of threading the needle starting as a writer and then moving to um you know producing and directing um and i guess we met how long ago would it have been when we first started uh, chatting well, it probably I, you know I, it was before you were starting to write for our body the first time that we met and I also should say that I've, uh, like you, I, I entered just a little before you the world of podcasting. And um, I have a podcast uh, on Grantland called The Moment with Brian Koppelman. And yep. uh, that's something that I'm devoting a good amount of time to as well. So, you know, uh, it's not just writing, directing, producing. I can also, I'm also talking into a microphone. He can, all, he can also talk. <laughs> He's, and uh, I remember a stand-up comedian once. Uh, yes, but it all ties into, Tim, this idea. And when you asked, I think that... I think that there's a question behind your statement that um, a lot, not many, that, that you know, most people you run across sort of end up in, in one thing, and and I think that what unifies every part of my own uh, my journey at, at this stuff is I always lead with my curiosity or obsession or fascination, and that's been something that I kind of codified for myself a long time ago, so that I see it all as one big um, endeavor, which is chasing down that which I'm curious about and finding a way to satisfy that. So if it's storytelling and there's a, a something that is something that I, we should write, and I, I write mostly with my partner, David Levine, make movies with him too, you know, sometimes that doesn't fully scratch the itch or the way we see the story, and that means we have to find a way to direct it or produce it. And then it's just a matter of figuring out what the tactics are to bring that about. No, definitely. And I want to focus on a lot of the tactics in our conversation uh, today. The, the, uh, the first place I thought we might start, uh, just as it relates to obviously pursuing your passion, because uh, similarly, I feel like many people chase happiness, and I put that in quotation marks in my mm-hmm. head, whereas if they were to simply pursue what excites them, the, 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 the happiness, the well-being part uh, often kind of takes care of itself. Uh, so in your case, uh, I saw a, a bit of an exchange that you pointed me to yesterday on Twitter about rounders. And, uh, I, I, 
I really enjoyed rounders and I even more so enjoyed it having since now spent a little bit of time with poker players in the last six months. And I wanted to hear a little about, uh, a little bit about how that movie came to be because it doesn't appear that, uh, everybody at the agencies and elsewhere were jumping up and, and sort of throwing confetti in the air when you first met with them. Uh, so I was no, hoping you could give some that, backstory. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true. I mean, um, well, the thing I, I tweeted, um, Brian Compliment on Twitter, and the thing that I, I tweeted um, was that the screenplay for Rounders that my partner David Levine and I wrote was rejected by every single agency in town. Now, when I say that, um, you may think that it's hyperbole or an exaggeration, but I mean CAA, Endeavor, William Morris, ICM, UTA, APA, Gersh Agency, uh, every single agency rejected it in, within a span of four days because uh, there was a young manager who believed in it. So he was like, I'm going to get you guys um, an agent. And, you know, when you're young and starting out, and I wasn't even that young, I was 30, um, you hold on to the words anybody who even has the most tenuous connection to the business. So he said, you're going to have an agent. And so I was uh, so hyper-focused, and I would write down, waiting for the, the call that was going to be, hey, they loved it. So I wrote down everything that everybody said. And it, it, it's um, out of a Hollywood movie about the movie business because the first person would say, you know, uh, Tom at Endeavor says it's uh, overwritten. I don't, I don't know what that means, but what I do know is that he would then say, and Spencer at William Morris says it's underwritten. <laughs> and I, and like, I have this. I have the piece of paper somewhere. you got to put the vowels back in, right? <laughs> right. So um, it was really dispiriting, man. And... Uh, and the thing was a labor of uh, love. And I, and I think, by the way, it's one thing to illustrate this idea you were talking about of what excites me and curiosity. And that is, when you said we met however many years ago, I mean, we met because uh, I just out of the blue found you because I was really curious and fascinated by what you did. And I don't even know how I chased you down, but I somehow found you through people. And I said, if you're ever in New York, I want to take you to lunch. And something about, and, and by the way, I had no game plan, right? I just wanted to meet you because I thought, I bet you in this exchange, there's a way that both of us can come away um, with a little bit more knowledge and with a little bit of an understanding of a different world. And, and that's like always my North Star. And so even on Rounders, I was in love with poker. Um, I had become sort of like a degenerate card player. I was 30 years old. I was unhappy with the life I was living. Uh, when I went to this one poker club in, in New York City, heard the way the people spoke, saw the way they looked, I realized, okay, that's a movie. I'm obsessed enough with this world and with the idea of making movies that I'm ready to turn my life upside down and went to my wife and my best friend Dave, my wife Amy, my best friend Dave, and like made a plan to be able to continue to work but to write this script in the mornings. Amy cleared out a storage space under the apartment we were, we were living in. Dave and I at the time had no contacts in the movie business, and we met two hours every single morning. We didn't miss a morning. I think we took Sundays off, but other than that, we didn't miss a morning. And um, we worked for two hours. He was bartending. I was going to my job. And in that, that two hours in the morning, nothing else was going on. It was There was a, a slop sink in this little storage area, room for one chair. I'd sit on the floor. Dave would sit at the typewriter most of the time. We had a stack of books that was like reading material about poker and the language of the game. 
And we just, you know, would sit in that room and write, and then at night we would go to these poker clubs and try to collect data, you know, lines that people said, stories that they told us, character traits. And with, you know, no thought that it was realistic or unrealistic. We didn't calculate any of it except how can we write a screenplay that we believe could be the basis for a movie that would be like what Diner was for us, a movie that, that, that people... At the time, I was probably thinking about guys in their 20s would, would if, it, if we could get it made, would want to just um, quote to each other. And <laughs> would it would be like the thing that was their little secret uh, private, you know, private movie. And that, that if we could do that, we'd, we'd succeeded. And so we finished it, and we really, really thought that we'd kind of captured it. And then that initial wave of rejection um, was blazing. But I have to tell you, it wasn't... Um, crushing, the, because I had lived through it in a prior, you know, in a prior life, um, and I, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about. But you know, I was in the music business before, and in, in and on both sides of it, being a, a seller and a, a buyer in the music business, and watched experts be wrong over and over again, and it taught me that there's a value in listening to the experts, hearing their reasons, but the step that a lot of people miss is a dispassionate evaluation of the reasons. And that if you can dispassionately evaluate the reasons for rejection and find them with merit, you can address them. Without merit, you can ignore them. And I learned to think that way when I was in my early 20s. So that although it, it always stings, it's always emotionally, um, you know, as I said, dispiriting when you face rejection, if, if you can step back and, and kind of make a an analysis and a game plan, you can then find a path forward. And, and that's what we did. So th- in the case of, of rounders, I love these stories. Uh, and almost everyone that I've, uh, a- almost every single person I know in Silicon Valley, for instance, uh, who's, who seemingly had overnight success, and this is perhaps a cl- the, the cliched counterpart, but they, they have an equivalent of the sitting in the basement story and they have an equivalent right. of the experts telling them, we, we either hate your idea, we hate you or both, or like, oh, that's an interesting company idea. We think it's terrible, but we like you. So why don't you completely change the business? And then maybe huh. we'll consider supporting you. It's very common, actually. Right. Love the team, hate the idea. And, uh, in this particular case, just to, because this is something I've always found and I quite frankly still find so befuddling about entertainment is the the roles and responsibilities of people with different titles. So in the case of a manager, uh, because it's 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 I don't have a an entertainment manager. I've spoken to tons of them. Do not have an agent. I've spoken to many many of them. Uh, but what what I'm curious about is how did you decide uh, to get a manager in the beginning? Well, how, that how, was just a lucky. That, okay. So David, my my partner, when when. Uh, out of college, went out to L.A. and got a job as an assistant mm-hmm. and was, I guess, planning to be a novelist and, and maybe a screenwriter. And when, and David, who you know, when, and when he, um, he left L.A. after a couple of years, realizing in his mind working in the business would make it harder to break into the business, that to really get the time to go do the writing he needed to do. But he somehow met somebody who met somebody who knew a 24-year-old kid who basically hung a shingle that said manager, which is really an advisor. <laughs> and he'd sold, the, the kid, Seth is his name, had sold one TV movie or something. And 
And so it was, like I said, that's why I said any tenuous connection. He was a guy who was starting out also. But, you know, one thing about Hollywood, it's a land of uh, self-invention. And so if you decide you're a manager, you're a manager. You have to be committed <laughs> to it. Uh, you know, that's how it is. Right, I mean, right, right. Read What Makes Sammy Run. And, and so... Um, what Makes Sammy Run? Is that a novel? The Bud Schulberg book, you know, okay. which is all about how somebody... Uh, it's a legendary uh, book and about how somebody, you know, makes their way. Okay. Um, in, in Hollywood, but what I'd say is that, so this young manager, we needed an agent because really agents are the ones who have the contacts to be able to sell something. In the end, though, the manager said, you know, I believe in this anyway, and he had known some people on his very low beginning level at a couple of production companies, producers, right. and he got the script to some of those, and we had some rejections, and then, and then some producer tried to give it, get us the option to him for free. And all along, we had to kind of keep our own sense of the project's merit, in a way, of, of its intrinsic, what we felt its intrinsic value was. And so, but finally, the right producer came along and gave it to somebody at Miramax, and then they were willing to step up. And there was this great moment early on where they wanted to option it. And I was flying in, in Las Vegas working. Uh, with an, I was in the music business still with an artist, and there were cell phones, and Dave couldn't reach me. And David said, um, no, uh, you can't option it. He, was, he had just had a moment of clarity where he said, you know what, you can buy it or walk away. But he knew somehow that um, what we had was good enough that they should, we should make them commit to buying it, which meant they had to spend a lot more money and would make it more likely that they would actually want to make the movie. Right. But, but you know, my, my experience before that was... Did that... Oh, the suspense yeah. is killing me. So did that, did that, did that uh, gambit work out? Yeah. Uh-huh, I like it. Okay. Miramax. In fact, he told me it on a cell phone at, 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 at Las Vegas airport. I, got, I was like, you really did that? And he goes, yeah, I did it. So our guys are going back and saying, um, you know, uh, you have to pay them, you know, real money. It was like six figures, you know, which at the time... For us, it was just a, a fortune of, of money. Yeah, would have been you know enough that the initial thing would have been we each would walk away with six figures or something. And then, I, by the time I landed in L.A., Miramax had already come back and said yes. Wow. And then we were in you know we were really um, we were really in business. How did you or the manager with the shingle get in touch with the the producer? Who then got it to the right person at Miramax? Well, uh, Seth had been at, you know, um, had networked in in, in Hollywood. The got manager, it. he okay. was out there, and he had, you know, done all the things of going to the um, right, you know, bars. I mean, the, listen, becoming an assistant in Hollywood is still a great way to make contacts. And yeah. I think he had worked his way up in the mailroom at one of the places and met enough people that look, we weren't getting in the, you know, he wasn't getting the script to sort of like. Uh, top-level folks, but um, ultimately he did get it, you know, f far enough. Now, from the from the music business, or well, I'm trying to, what, what I've always been fascinated by are writing duos. And I'll, I want to come back to the sort of the, the process of making a movie, because quite frankly, it's something like you know I've been thinking about for a, a long sure. time. But how do you work with David? Because I've, I've met other writing duos, for instance, uh, the Freakonomics guys. And uh, there are these these sort of 
Wonder Twins who who put out really good work, and I have no idea how I would ever work with a writing partner. Not because I couldn't do it, I just don't know how you would even format such a thing. So when you guys were sitting down in the basement or in the storage room, what did the process look like? What did you do over those two hours? Um, that's a great question. It's shifted over the years, the, the ways in which we, we've worked. Um, what we did back then was we together outlined it We'd, you know, gone to these clubs and, like I said, did a tremendous amount of um, research mm-hmm. so, that, so that we understood who the people were. And then we spent a lot of time talking about the story. So we would kind of tell each other the story, you know, do a bunch of work trying to say, okay, who are these characters and how would they interact with each other? We want to tell it about the world of poker. And then we kind of together in talking invented these characters. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, and then I remember one of us, Dave and I never talk about who came up with what, um, but one of us came up with this notion of um, making uh, the beginning of this movie, like making rounders start where the Cincinnati Kid ended. Mm-hmm. Right? At the end of the Cincinnati Kid, spoiler, skip 30 seconds if you don't know that movie that came out in 1963, but um, the Cincinnati Kid ends with, with Steve McQueen, the young guy, losing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our idea was, well, what if we start this right there, this guy who loses everything? And so then we outlined from that premise every scene of the movie. Mm. And so it was, it was outlined in, in, in detail, and our rule from the beginning was we, we can deviate from the outline anytime we have a better idea, but if we don't have a better idea, let's just stick to the outline, because we can always revise, rewrite later. Yep. And then we knew what each scene was supposed to be about, so we would just talk it back and forth, because writing the movie dialogue is conversational. Mm-hmm. And so we would just go back and forth. And if one of us had a better idea, okay, yeah, all right, write those lines. Or I, I would say it, Dave would type it, or he would type it, get up, and I would type. And we, we really just kind of jammed it. Then at night in our separate worlds, we would each, when we felt like uh, doing it, read through a bunch of pages, make notes. So come in the next morning and right before we started, go, hey, that scene we wrote, you know, on page 10, what if this happened instead in that line? And we, you know, uh, because we've been, he and I have been like brothers since we were 14 and 15 years old. Right. We have a shorthand. There, we don't have any bullshit between us. So right. that we, there was, there has never been an argument we've had that's been about sort of ego or about um, anybody feeling like the other guy doesn't value his contributions. Right. And that's, like, that's the key to a, a collaboration. We are each, I think, um, keenly grateful for what the other person brings. No, and I'm, I'm so envious of this on some level. And people ask me, for instance, are you working on a next book? And the answer is no, because I find it so incredibly isolating uh, to do it solo. And even if I have a team helping with design and research and things like that, it can be a very, for me at least, psychologically traumatic experience, <laughs> like being locked. No, in. it's really hard. Yeah. Like I wrote um, one of our movies, Solitary Man, starring Michael Douglas. I wrote that movie alone, David. And, but now here's the thing: I wrote it alone. David and I directed it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I wrote it alone because when I'd written the beginning of it uh, and read it to Dave, he said, "You know, you have the voice for this. This is personal to you for certain reasons. You write the draft, and then let's make the movie together." And I felt I needed to, uh, I felt he was right. And, uh, because the 20 pages I'd written were very particular. And 
Well, it took me so much longer than it would have taken for us to do it together. It was because we were making other movies along the way, but but beyond that, not having him to bounce stuff off of, not having the benefit of his great ideas, really made it uh, a lonely battle. Um, and but I was, I must say, you know, when I was able to to finish it and then giving it to him and then getting the benefit of his wisdom to come be my partner and and go make the movie was was great. Um, and useful and like um, something either of us should do uh, again because then you have the other guy coming in um, and all his ideas can happen to take something that's basically finished and then take it to a whole nother level. Right. And now the, the uh, you know, when I, when I met with, uh, when we had sushi, uh, the three of us uh, in New York City, uh, I, I was so fascinated by sort of the state of the industry and distribution. And, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But when did you become a producer and what does that mean in the context of the films that you've been involved with as a producer because i'm sure like a lot of people uh you see uh, a film you look at the credits and you're like holy shit there are 15 producers i have no idea what all these people are doing so in in the context of what you do uh when did you decide to become a producer and what did that mean in in terms of how you related to the content and ultimately you know, shared in the spoils or whatever. I mean, how, how, what what did that? What shape did that take, and what did it mean? Well, sometimes it's a vanity title, so you're right to recognize that when you watch a movie. Right. Um, sometimes you know it just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But when the movies that we've when we've been a producer on a movie, it's because we either had the central idea that made it a movie, or were able to connect people to one another. Um, you know, an example, and it's actually great because it's a illustrative of a few different things is, is The Illusionist, which stars Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti. Yeah, great movie. And I love that Thank movie. you. And, and that's based on a short story called Eisenheim, The Illusionist, by a brilliant guy named Stephen Milhauser. And Dave and I had had that story. That story was in Best American Short Stories 1989. And uh, I, I, I had carried that story around for like 13 years. And then said one day, Dave and I were with Neil Berger, a writer-director, and we had... We'd helped him make his first teeny tiny movie called Interview with the Assassin. And we're standing around outside his editing room and said, do you know this short story, I'm the Illusionist? That should really be a movie. And he said, I do know it. I bet you I could figure out how to make it. Because Dave and I couldn't figure out how to write that movie originally. Mm-hmm. We knew there was a movie in it. We couldn't recognize it. So we said to Neil, hey, if you want to try to figure out how to, how to write it, we'll produce it, meaning we'll acquire the short story, which we actually got for free for a year and a half, and we paid a little bit of money to keep it going. We said, we'll sit with you, Neil, so that creatively you have us to bounce your ideas off of, and we will um, help you along to where there's a script that we all think can get made, and then we'll go and try to attach other elements, meaning actors, financial partners, and all that stuff. Now, that movie... um, has done a hundred million worldwide at the box office, not including DVD or video on demand. Right. It's, I, the real number is like ninety-seven point five million dollars worldwide. And I will tell you, Tim, it was rejected at every stage by everybody in Hollywood. I mean, this <laughs> is—that's why I return to this theme. I think it's really important. When I say again, every studio had a chance to see that thing at the screenplay stage, and again at the final movie stage. Oh, sorry, screenplay stage. They all rejected it. At the stage where we had attached Edward and Paul, they all rejected it. <laughs> and then when we finished it, even though we tested it, and it tested uh, like as high as a movie can test, 
one of the highest testing movies of all time, meaning that the crowds objectively loved it, and we did it repeatable. It was repeatable. We tested it in various different places. They all passed again. And and then it goes on to do 100. So That doesn't make any sense to me at all. So how is it possible? Like, What is the rationale that a, an exec would use for rejecting something after the stars are attached and you've had successful crowd testing? Like, I, I'm just trying to figure out, besides being completely incompetent, have, like what there has to be some logic, however, however perverse. They, by, by and large, they take, they take comfort very often in decisions for which they can't be fired. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. passing on a magic movie set in Austria in the 1800s, that's pretty easy to pass on. Um, Got it. So it's a it's a it's a you never get fired for buying IBM type of situation. Yeah, you get but but you know you buy the illusionist and it fails. The next guy, the, the you know the 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 guy under you says, uh, well, well, that imbecile uh, thought a movie with with people in capes, you know, doing magic tricks was going to sell. I would never dream that. I'll make the next superhero movie. So I mean that's very reductive. By the way, I'm being very reductive, right? These are actually smart. These are actually smart people and they're thoughtful people. But there is uh, there there is groupthink. There, there is um, shallow thinking sometimes, yeah. and there is like herd mentality. So, um, and, and listen, a lot of the time they're correct. It's very safe to say no. Yeah. But and I'll just tell one more rejection story. Sure, and, and the reason I do is because um, I find that on uh, sorry, so one other thing, which is Hollywood's always trying to um, remake what was successful today, and they don't understand that what's successful very often don't understand what's successful today isn't going to be successful a year from now. Right. And so it's Mavericks who figure that out. And, yeah. and Maverick producers or smaller movie companies or the occasional you know, brilliant woman who's the head of production. But, but, but mostly they forget that it's a... What's the technology term? Like a destructive technology? Uh, or dis- a, disruptive. A, a disruptive. They, they forget that this is disruptive technology and, and that, that all the time, you know, bridesmaids was a destructive tech, a disruptive technology, yeah. right? The, the conventional wisdom was you can't put a movie with that, those women. Uh, a raunchy movie starring women doesn't work. Now, somebody at Universal realized that was a faulty premise somehow. Mm-hmm. And so then that becomes the disruptive thing that leads to, you hope, a bunch of others. And then, of course, you get to the point where that no longer is going to work because that, that appetite's been sated. But believe me, they'll keep... They'll make the same that mistake, you know. They'll keep going after that until there's just nothing left in it for yeah. each kind of thing. And in in the case of the short story, uh, how did you? What was the approach that you used to? It sounds like option that for free. Sure. So year, year that ago. was and an um, option just to, so I can clarify is effectively uh, yeah. a, no, a no shop agreement, right? You, like we have exclusive rights to try to develop this into a film for X period of time. And and sometimes it has a B side, which is. Um, and then we guarantee that if we develop it into a film, the the author will receive a floor of X. Got it. And then for your protection, our protection, you might say, and a ceiling of Y. And that might those numbers might be um, percentages of the shooting budget of the film. I see. Got it. Do you want to say that a lot more? Like again? Do you want no, to, I got I it. I know I you it. understand it. Yeah, yeah you, um, you, so, you have the bare minimum the author is guaranteed, and the and the maximum in sort of broad strokes as a percentage of the total uh, production budget of the film. Exactly, and so sometimes you'll do that, and sometimes you'll have to pay a little bit up front against those numbers, but we didn't. So here's what we did. Um, and at the time, I think we'd made one, perhaps two movies, two, 
we'd been involved in two movies then, Rounders and Knockaround Guys, and certainly weren't um, as far along in our career as, as we are now. And But, you know, passion and one thing that really works in, in the entertainment business is genuine passion and enthusiasm um, and uh, belief, and then some way of telling your story that gives people on the receiving end of it the confidence that you actually have the answer to um, the question that you're raising. So we found that the story was controlled by, I think, uh, William Morris, might have been ICM, ICM, and found the name of the woman who was uh, in charge of those kind of subsidiary rights, they're called, of uh, uh, short stories. And we figured, actually, that whoever was doing that was probably a little bit junior, and was probably used to just getting faxes back, faxes sent with requests. And we, we thought, you know, I bet you not that many people call her and, and ask if they can take her to lunch. Right, right. And so we were guys who made a couple of movies, and we called, and we said, can we take you to lunch? We have some stuff we want to talk about. And took her to lunch and walked her through our vision for this movie and explained that we were the truth. We're not really producers. We, we don't have um, development money. We don't have a fund. Um, we don't have backers. What we have is uh, know-how and passion, and if you explain this to the author, and you know, we gave her this mission that she then could embrace as her own mission, which was, I can go deliver to this author something, some great news, which is, there are a couple of guys who, while you're sleeping, Stephen Milhauser, are going to be, you know, doing everything they can to make something happen with your uh, with your short story. Mm-hmm. And so she went away and got us, I think she got us a year and then another six months for free. At which point we felt, because it was getting rejected and Neil was rewriting, we felt like um, it wasn't even fair to ask for more time free. Right. But then it was only like $1,000, $1,500. It took us years. But over those years, we then added a partner at some point when, when we thought we were maybe going to have to pay a little bit more. Neil Berger did all this work for free, wrote the script 15 times at our, you know, with our notes and going through it. And, um, but eventually... I mean, eventually everybody, everybody won. Um, um, I I, know this, I I love, I love these stories. I I do think there's perhaps one caveat that I'd love to get you to comment on a potential caveat. And that is, uh, there are people who could confuse getting rejected with being a solid indicator that their product is absolutely good. So just because you get rejected doesn't mean your product is, well, I think is we, good, right? We, so how do you, I guess what I'm wondering is what signals do you pay attention to uh, or, or are there projects that you've well, had rejected and eventually you're like, you know what? Uh, yeah, yeah, the the exactly. signal is, is correct. Like this is well, that's, not that's, something I, think I should pursue. The first thing I said at the beginning of this conversation about this area was you must do a dispassionate evaluation, right? I said there's the step and the step that you try to take is Okay, that's a body blow that hurts. Yep. Um, my emotional reaction is anger. Yep. And hurt. Now let me step back and dispassionately, to the best of my ability, dispassionately evaluate the rejection. Is there something in that rejection that hits home in the secret place where I know the thing is flawed? Right. If it does, is that addressable? Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, um, is are the are the fundamental things I believe about this? still true. Okay, if they are, let's press on. If they're not, can we, if they're not, can we um, fix it? If we can't, 
maybe that rejection is is right. Mm-hmm. But you have to take it. The dispassion is really important because you you have to know it's not a rejection of you, and you have to know you you have to be able to find a way to evaluate. But, but I will say something I always think about and um and and believe is that it's a very fine line for artists especially between delusion and belief. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so many people believe are deluded in the belief um, that they're great, uh, the work is great, and that everybody else is crazy. Right? <laughs> but, but somehow the, the problem is that the artists who succeed also have that exact same narrative <laughs> most of the time. Right, they're just eccentric and not crazy. Well, you know, they're, they're crazy beliefs. <laughs> no, but, but the story, so the, the final sort of story in this little, um, in this little area and it, 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 of rejection is, and I'll do this very quickly because I told it before, but when I was 21, really when I was 19, I discovered this, I, I was um, organizing a, a boycott at my college um, against uh, in, investing um, the school's endowment into companies that did business in South Africa because apartheid was going on. Sure. And in organizing this stuff, I stumbled upon a singer-songwriter I wanted to play at this rally. That was Tracy Chapman, and uh, who, uh, if a lot of your listeners know are, are young, in their 20s, they may not know, Tracy became, the, for a time, the biggest oh, singer-songwriter huge, in, huge, in the huge. world. Yeah. And sold like 13 million albums. But, and I worked with Tracy. I produced her demos and um, got... so. Produced her demos, worked with her. My father was in the music business, so I knew about the music business, and I, had, I knew people in the music business. And I had Tracy. Uh, we signed her. People would come up from New York to watch her. I was in Boston. People would come up from New York to watch her perform. I would watch record company executive after record company executive watch her, be personally moved by it, sometimes get tears in their eyes because what she was singing about was so important and her voice was so beautiful. And then they would say, can I please meet her? I just want to meet her. She's what an amazing. And I could see they weren't bullshitting me, Tim. They they had a cathartic experience watching her perform. Mm-hmm. And they would walk me. I would walk them to their. Uh, I was at Tops, and I would walk them to their car in winter before they drove back to New York or to their hotel. And they would look me in the eye and they would say, "Thank you for a night I'll always remember." And then they would say, "Now you know uh, we can't possibly sign her at Columbia Records." <laughs> 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 well, I was a kid. I was 20 by this point, probably a junior. At, I love at you, and I never want to see you again. Yeah, no. And I would say, dude, I don't understand, like, um, man, because <laughs> was like, I, what do you, you just? I saw you crying, and uh, she was playing, talking about a revolution, and baby, can I hold you tonight? And and they go, yeah, yeah, but she's black. Um, she's seems a bit masculine, is what they would say, right? Um, and I'd say, but didn't you see like those three or four or 500 people who knew every word, even though there's no record out, there's no internet, you know, there wasn't any internet. They just come to show, yes, but it's college, it's bullshit. And I'd go, I've traveled, and I had, this is part of how, to answer your question of how you know, I had traveled all over New England with her and watched her perform to any audience she performed to, ended up on their feet and coming back again and again and again. And uh, so I knew that these people were wrong, even though they were rationally correct, right? Because right. nobody like her had been successful. Right. Um, it was totally against what was going on in music at the time. So because they were on the inside, their entire, all the defenses they had up were actually valid defenses that usually you ought to have, have up. They just couldn't understand that this was disruptive. Right. So I, because of my innocence, was able to understand that. But the lesson of that, then when it finally happened and we finally got her signed, the record company she signed to even told me it's not going to sell any records, but it's the beginning of a career and all this stuff, even after playing them fast car, 
And watching that happen and taking that ride, and by the way, I like you know had a point on that album, and so I made a lot of money as a young man, yeah. um, uh, certainly a lot of money for a 21-year-old. Yeah. But watching that happen made me pretty indefatigable going forward right. when I truly believed in something because I've just watched experts um, absolutely buy into conventional wisdom and, and absolutely be wrong. By the way, we all have blind spots. I've been wrong. You've been wrong. It's mm-hmm. just that... Um, I don't know, I think that there's a, 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 a likelihood that uh, if you are sane, if you are, and if you're rigorous, if you are rigorous in your own R&D in whatever your area is, and you do your own testing, and you really stress test the thing that you do, I don't know, I think that gives you a tremendous amount of inner fortitude when you come up against the monolith. Definitely. And I think that once you've seen it once, you recognize it as a second and a third time. And in the case of, of course, the four hour work week, I mean, that was rejected, uh, not, not even politely. I mean, very violently, uh, in, uh, you know, 27, I think, uh, in 27 cases or so. Uh, and that, that, and then bought for a, you know, bought for a song, which I, I, they deserved because they were the only, that was the, I was the market price, right? I, I don't, I don't, uh, in any way hold it against them. They, uh, they, they, they made a, a good decision and they got rewarded for it. Uh, but the, I, I'd love to get your advice very selfishly. And this is, this is because I, uh, for many reasons. I mean, number one, you're very qualified. Number two, this is something that's just been a bug in my brain for a long time. And that is, uh, potentially turning the four hour work week into a film. And we've talked about this. Uh, I was inspired by, uh, our meeting in New York, uh, quite a long time ago, uh, in between books to go to the story seminar with Robert McKee. And I think that, uh, David might have recommended, uh, save the cat. Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think he might have. No, he wouldn't have recommended. I think you asked. I remember the conversation. I, I may have forced strong arm into a book. <laughs> I remember what you asked. You said, is there anything that sort of talks about what the conventional way you do it? There we go. All right. And because I really think those books are pretty, I think all that stuff is pretty useless. But um, so, so just just to uh, so useless as they may be, I, I became fascinated by screenwriting uh, at the very least, and yeah. sort of put together a skeleton structure of what could become sort of an entertaining, funny movie with philosophical takeaways, not completely unlike Fight Club, but. To tracking the story and the backstory of the four-hour work week. Now, the the reason yeah. nothing has happened with that, there are many, but one of them is that I've been scared senseless by all of the factors that can derail a promising project. Right? It's like you have Edward Norton attached, and this, and the audience loves it, and still there are roadblocks and people who can derail the project. And in the case of TV, for instance, you know, I've been working on this, uh, this TV show for the last year plus, close to a year and a half, if you really add in all the contract negotiation and everything else. But when you're, when you're operating with a partner that is a large company, like uh, Turner in this case, there are all sorts of internal dynamics that can lead to uh, delays and, and postponement, like, like the launch of this TV show. And it's been very, very frustrating for me as, as, as someone who likes to create to see this work that I've put my heart and soul and sweat and tears into, uh, get postponed, uh, with no real sort of light in sight at the end. So what I guess what I'm wondering is if you were in my shoes, how would you in this day and age with Kickstarter and all these different options, think of creating a feature film? How, how would you, how what would well, you? Well, do you want to, the threshold, you, you, you know, um, do you you want to write it? Yes. 
I absolutely would want to have a very heavy role uh, in... Well, then my advice to you is pretty analog, which is write it. Okay, all right. Because the power is, I'll tell you, um, so David and I, um, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, um, wrote this uh, this thing, Billions, that we're going to make for Showtime. And the standard way you would do it, if you were in our position, is you go, because, you know, when you've made some things, the now... Um, at the at the sort of idea stage, um, we're not going to get rejected that often, right? Or right. at the early stage when they their their only outlay is to get you pay you to write a script. So um, we a few different times gone to HBO and made made deals with them to write a script, and then the shows didn't get made. And we were trying to figure out the way to uh, have the highest probability of once we decided that. We didn't care. It's great to get the money to write a script, but that that wasn't primary. What, right. what, was, what was most important to us was the, the real chance to go make a show. That's Absolute, what matters, absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. So we realized that if we wrote it on spec, meaning speculatively, meaning without a deal in place, right. here's what we risked. We risked three months of our lives where we would have gotten paid a lot of, you know, uh, certainly a really good amount of money in the fourth quarter of a year, right? And where opportunity costs were walking away from a lot of paying jobs, right? Right. And we decided we're going to take three months and we're going to, or at the time, I don't think we knew three months could have been any amount of time, a month to five months. We're going to write this script on spec so that we can either not sell it and then we've wasted this time, although, I mean, we, you know, we can talk about whether that's even a waste of time. I don't think any of that's a waste, but essentially, right from business standpoint, wasted that time, or we would have leverage. Because if somebody wanted what was now concretized in a, an actual script, if they wanted it, we could say, well, that's fine. You have to pay us, but more than that, you have to commit to making it. Right. And that if you don't actually, if you're not committing right now to making it, we're not going to sell it. And there's no way to... Get, uh, there are people who get that without it, but it's very hard to get that without having the piece of material that's compelling. Because in your case, with a screenplay, mm-hmm. a real screenplay that let's assume you write an excellent screenplay. You write it, you go to all your friends who do what I do, we all give you advice, you go take the notes, you make it better, make it better. Here's a great script. Well, now the world is open to you. Why? Because now you can go get the one thing that's the most valuable, which is a piece of talent attached to it. Right. Um, now, if you have a... Because signing on, you can get a movie... Let's say you get a movie star tomorrow to jump on to the 4-Hour Workweek. It's not a real commitment because they, the real movie stars aren't going to really sign on until it's a screenplay and they really see it manifested in... in really manifested as a story. Mm-hmm. But if you can manifest it as a story and get a movie star, you have a movie. That's just binary. Yeah. That's how that happens. Now, there's huge risk. The risk to that is to your time and your ego. That's all you're risking, time yeah. and ego. Um, and I, for me, in your shoes, knowing, because, you know, over the years, you've left me voicemail messages like three different times. Hey, I'm working on a screenplay. Uh, and then, you know, I don't hear from you again <laughs> for five more months. Right. Still working. I remember our conversation. Really excited to show you. And um, <laughs> which is great. I love getting those messages. It lets me know you're alive and happy. But, <laughs> And I don't. I picture wine. I always picture a lot of wine involved, <laughs> probably, right? Before, yeah, those are probably my drunk dials to you, my drug texting. Oh God! But but I I, I have to say that um, you want to do this, Tim. So you should. Yeah. I mean, the, I could just hear the advice you'd give somebody else. It's like go write the script. Now, there's if you had a screenplay, we could sit for an hour and a half and devise seven different ways for real, like 
uh, like yeah, like seven, five or five to seven different ways to figure out how to get them, how to how to go from a finished screenplay to um, a, a made movie that and 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 how much control you could keep or would have to give up along the way depending on who and how you aligned different resources. But all of that starts from a finished screenplay. And to create that, no, this is this is exactly what I need to hear. Uh, the to to create that screenplay, I, I know you do not have a very high opinion of a lot of the screen writing books out there. However, I, I want to become good at the craft. I want to be educated, obviously. Uh, is the best way to do that Your by reading... Your story about how you get good at anything, or Waitzkin's story about how you get good at anything, it's like by going to the source and figuring out what are people doing or misunderstanding about it. Like, right, how can I get better faster is your specialty. Right. And I would suggest to you that the, that the ways in which people have written those books talk about it is at best archaic, and at okay. worst, wrong. Like I, but today, I did on my podcast... Um, on the moment, I interviewed my friend John Hamburg, who wrote um, and directed uh, I Love You, Man, and Along Came Polly, and yeah. wrote Meet the Fockers and Meet the Parents. He's one of the biggest comedy writers in the business and directors. And he started talking about his approach to writing scenes. And I, I, I said to him, I was like, this is whatever. John Hamburg, a guy who's just had nothing but success doing this, was talking about how he thinks about a scene and, and questions he asked himself before writing. And I thought, why doesn't someone just put that in a fucking book? Like, that's worth that's worth a million dollars. Like, that's incredible. And so, I, I, you know, I think what you need to do is um, watch m- movies. And I said to Hamburg, how did you figure this out? And here's what he said. He said, I would watch a movie I loved, like, five times, taking notes the whole time. I would stop. I would watch individual scenes and try to figure out why those individual scenes work. Mm-hmm. What is it that makes those individual scenes work? And I would really, he was like, I would really grind on it. And I would really take notes. And I would really try to figure out each part of it. And, and then I'd do it again. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that that is more valuable, especially for you who are so good at looking at systems right. and figuring out where the mo- where, you know, where within those systems are the fulcrum, where's the fulcrum? How does this turn? How did you're great at that, and I think that if I'm you, that's what I'm looking at. I mean, the first one of those six-second, you know, I do this yeah. thing called six-second screenwriting um, on Vine, and the very first one I did was uh, all screenwriting books are, are bullshit. You know, read screenplays, watch movies, and let them be your guide. And I still think that that's true. You know, if you're writing a conspiracy movie, watch Network but don't watch it once. Watch Network seven times. Right. Watch Network enough that you can start to understand where the scenes are and start to understand where the craft, uh, you know, where the craft exists and how it's built. What? That's my. I mean, look. No, uh, by is... the way, I'm um, I'm very extreme about this because <laughs> I think you're a, whole... a militant screenwriter. <laughs> I just yeah. Well, I wrote this. Uh, I wrote this blog post called um, the uh, the. Screenwriting instruction, the con men and the screenwriting instruction industrial <laughs> complex. <laughs> it's very that is very extreme. Because yeah, it's at um, BrianHoffman.com. Because I decided that um, I, I watched these people charging. You know, like a guy wants to go, a woman who wants to go out to Hollywood and try to become a screenwriter. You know, two hundred fifty dollars to that woman is a lot of money to give to somebody supposedly to teach her how to write genre. Who's, and then that person has never even sold a screenplay, right, right. much less had a movie made. Yeah. At least Robert McKee, who I'm, I'm not, 
I can't rip McKee because too many successful screenwriters, people I admire, have say they got something out of his, his class. But I would say at least McKee has produced credits. Yep. Like he's uh, okay. There's a there's a podcast um, by Craig Mazin and John August called Script Notes. Um, those two guys between them have 20 movie credits, hit movies. Those two guys know what they're talking about. They're in the trenches making movies every day. This is a and podcast you said. Would, script Notes. Script Notes. Oh, um, script Notes. John, John August and Craig Mazin. Um, you know, um, there are resources that are, and especially now, there are so many resources for people to look to um, that that I think are more helpful than sort of maybe what used to be considered the thing to go to the Radisson and sit in some guy's seminar. Got it. And just just as a starting point, uh, are are there screenplays that you recommend any aspiring screenwriter read, or is it very sort of target specific? Where I say, uh, well, I think that Tony Gilroy's screenplay from Michael Clayton is a, uh, just a, a work of a state of the art, you know, yep. state of the art platinum screenplay. Got it. Uh, because what he pulls off in that movie is so difficult to pull off. Yeah. Um, that kind of flawed hero who's still heroic, those plot mechanics, caring about those characters, and he writes like a dream. And, yeah, I, I would say that's a really great screenplay uh, uh, to read, for sure. Um, I mean, Network by Patty Shaevsky, that's a great screenplay to read as well. And especially, you know, watch the movie and then read the screenplay. Yeah. And figure, you know, I mean, I, I definitely think those things. I mean, for you, I would, I would read Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, but I would not just like, I know you know the movie, but I would try to figure out, like I would watch the movie again because there are very clear storytelling devices that Cameron Crowe uses. And you can't find a, uh, someone who makes movies with more heart and soul than Cameron Crowe, but that doesn't mean that the craft isn't exceptional also. Right. And, but, but unconventional in certain ways. And, like, so if I'm you, I'm looking at that movie and I'm watching it as, much, as often as I'm watching Fight Club. Right. Cool. Because your story is sort of in between those things. No, definitely. I absolutely. 100% agreed. Uh, and uh, I need to get on it. Well, that's, that's good news. I'm going to be, I'll be out in your neck of the woods on, on the East Coast, so you might get some more drunk dolls while I'm watching these. But uh, <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so funny because I, I had, when you called me to do this, I was trying to call, I was calling you also to say that we should get together and talk about all this because I wondered what was going on. And, 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 you know, and I've been so focused. I understand the side of it that, that you're talking about and why people are so engaged. But, you know, I love hearing you talk to people about, um, about how, to, how to maximize yourself. Because that, and, and I'm talking about how to maximize your internal life in a way that allows you to um, stave off fear long enough to do the work. Mm-hmm. Because he, and I would suggest to you, Tim, that even you um, are probably afraid of failing at this. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. I mean, and, I, yeah. and um, that's, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I mean, and, and, and so because no, because writing is uniquely and especially writing fictional, you know, even though it's a, based on your life, you know, writing a story, a movie story, like um, some part of ourself really doesn't want to know that um, maybe we're not great at telling stories or this time, like, like it's uh, so fundamental to our experience to be entertaining but the thought of not being entertaining is kind of crushing. But um, you're such a good storyteller that you've got to just find a way to get a discipline and a routine going that, you know, I, like you're, a bunch of the people you talk to, uh, as do, I do, do some kind of morning free writing. Do you? 
I'm sorry. Can you say that one more time? You, you do morning free. Do you free write in the morning? I do journaling in the morning, uh, which is not probably the same as free writing. Uh, maybe you could explain exactly how you go about it. How do you go about it? Well, I'm really just journaling my plans for the day, uh, observing myself as a mindfulness practice. But yeah. it's not. There's no real narrative, um, which I suppose is maybe antithetical to <laughs> free writing. But it's mostly trying to just examine where I am psychologically and emotionally prior to starting the day and then setting sort of a framework for, for not, uh, com- completely self-sabotaging for the rest of the, uh, the morning and afternoon. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great practice, um, to get in. Yeah. What I do is, um, really based on the morning pages by Julia Cameron in the artist way. And, um, it's three longhand, pages where you just keep the pen moving for three pages no matter what no censoring no rereading and i just have found that it's um the closest thing to magic i've come across that if you really do it every day in a real disciplined practice um something happens to your subconscious that allows you to get to your most creative place and i i'd say and i know you've had this experience with other things you've given people let's say i've given that book to a hundred people and said i'm telling you you need to do this of that uh, of the 100 people I've given it to, maybe 10 of them have actually opened the book and done the exercises. Of those 10, seven have, um, have had books, movies, um, TV shows made out successful. Wow. And it's an incredible thing. Changed my, I mean, that book changed my life, even though it's very spiritual and I'm, I'm an atheist. But the core ideas in it, the core tools in that book... Um, are they're kind of a companion to um, the war of art because right, right. Pressfield talks about resistance and Cameron has I think the cure for it and so um, I think they really go together and and uh, I think it would be useful for you if 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 it turns out this is something that's important to you to do. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's one of those things that uh, won't go away, <laughs> uh-huh. in the way that uh, would seem to indicate. Uh, you know, before my time on this earth is expired, I just, I have to do it, uh, and uh, I'm gonna get into it. I'll dig in, and uh, I, I'm actually fortunate that I have uh, some some time opening up in the next few months to really dedicate to to trying to to really tackle it properly. So. Uh, but it never gets to, you know, totally easy. As no. Know. I mean, creating every day, I just want to say something that may sound, I may sound glib about this stuff, but every day is still, for me, um, all that stuff that you have and that everybody has, the insecurity, the fear that you're not good enough, that you don't have, like, I, I have to wrestle it every day, you know, meditation and morning pages and long walks, and, like, you have to, you know, do every, every day it's about building a practice that enables you to try to forget that you're afraid. Right. Just like whipping the beast of burden, yeah. <laughs> trying to get it to do what you want. Uh, well, this is, this has been really fun. I, uh, I'm sure we'll end up having a round two at some point. I'm sure my, my audience will, will probably ask for it. Uh, so I will, uh, put a bunch of links in the show notes where people can find more about you and your work. But what is, what is the best place if you could send people to one place to learn more about you? Where would you suggest they go? I mean, tw- I think Twitter, Brian Koppelman, B-R-I-N-K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N. Twitter, um, and my blog's not that active, but at Twitter kind of leads you to places and my podcast, which is The Moment with Brian Koppelman, which is weekly show every Tuesday through the Grantland Network. All right. Well, this is uh, this has been great. We'll actually have to, to meet up for another proper meal and maybe some wine or something like that. 
Oh, yeah, you bring the wine. Let's I'll definitely bring the wine. do that. And you bring the wine because I have a whole bunch of things I need to ask you soon. <laughs> so, oh, hey, come on my podcast. Sure, I would love to. Uh, done. All right. Done deal. Great. I'll, I'll email. Uh, I'll email the sky. Uh, however, those people all get to you. I'm going to email them, and we're going to set up. Uh, <laughs> They'll throw the net. On. They'll throw the net on me. But uh, thanks so much for the time, and hey, thank uh, you. I'll talk to you soon, man. Bye, okay. Bye, bye. If you want more of the Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to 4hourblog.com where you'll find an award-winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash tferris. That's T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Ferriss. Until next time, thanks for listening.